Well, I have always been a baseball fan for as long as I can remember. I think it's probably why I get along so well here at Spring Branch. Michael and I both love baseball, although I may not be a Yankees fan. I'm usually a fan of whoever's playing the Yankees. But, uh, but I, uh, I love baseball, and I don't, I, I, you know, as life has become more complex and one kid has turned into three kids. I don't get a lot of opportunity to watch baseball. But usually in October, I can convince parents that we can, you know, that we, can we, play, we can watch something other than say yes to the dress. Uh, I think, can we please, we can watch a World Series game. Would that be good? Yes, we're good. So we, uh, the other night, we turned to, uh, to game six of the World Series. Now, some of you may have watched that game. In fact, chances are a lot of you watched that game. The ratings were off the charts. But let me tell you, the ratings were off the charts after I fell asleep. So like, like many of you, I fell asleep about the sixth or seventh inning. Now, you may not be a baseball fan, but you can at least appreciate a boring game. You've watched them. Some of you have been to them. Some of you just think the thought of baseball is boring. Well, we'll have a talk after the service. But I'll tell you, I, I was just utterly bored with this game. It was a comedy of errors. It was poor coaching decisions, one after another. And it just seemed like this was going to be the end for the St. Louis Cardinals and the Texas Rangers were going to run off with this year's, this year's World Series title. And then I fall asleep. Well, like many of you who fell asleep, you woke up the next morning to check your Facebook status or to turn on ESPN or the news, and you saw that this game that we slept through is being heralded as one of the greatest baseball games of all time. The greatest. In fact, the ratings between the seventh inning and the eleventh inning almost tripled. Millions and millions of people tuned in. It's the power of social media and text messages. Hey, you better wake up. And let me just tell you now, I'm going to give all of you my cell phone afterwards. If there's a great game that unfolds, you text me and wake me up. Maybe I should be careful. Only during the World Series. Well, this, is, this story unfolded. And I got a call from a, from a good friend of mine. Who, uh, who lives in Northern Virginia, is a seminary buddy of mine, and he uh, it used to be a fan of baseball. Uh, but because of all of the high salary negotiations and the performance-enhancing drug issues, he kind of lost faith in the game and walked away from it. And so every year when we would go up to Minnesota to school, all of us guys would go out to a Twins game, and we'd try and drag, a, drag Todd along, but Todd didn't want to be there. And he said, no, I, I don't trust baseball anymore. It's all, you know, it's fixed. It's not a real game. And so he called me. It was interesting. I haven't talked to him in a while. I called, left a message for me. I called him back, and I said, what's going on, Todd? He said, well, I thought you'd like to know that I happened to tune in to, to game six of the World Series. And between the seventh inning and the eleventh inning, with the walk-off home run, I watched and felt my faith in baseball return. Once again, I'm back in the game, and I thought, well, that's great. I'm never going to go to a Twins game with you anymore. But your faith is restored in the game. And many people who were watching baseball thought this is one of the most amazing games that has ever been played. Well, this isn't a service about baseball. But it is a service. It is an experience about one word, and that is uncertainty. 
Because I believe that it's uncertainty that drew all of us who watched that game or who want to experience a game like Game 6 of the World Series 2011 that drew all of us in together. There was something about not knowing what was going to happen that kept us engaged, that kept us riveted to our televisions if we could stay awake. But you know, it's one thing to talk about uncertainty when it comes to entertainment. When it comes to television, it's another thing to talk about uncertainty when our lives hang in the balance, when our families are involved, when our livelihood is in jeopardy, and then uncertainty turns to, I'm not so excited, I'm just a little more comfortable falling asleep. I'll change the channel, I'll watch something else that's a little bit more palatable, that doesn't quite challenge me as much. Uncertainty gets scary. But that's where we live, our lives. All of us, if we have something in common in this world, it's that there is uncertainty, yet there is also certainty. We live right in the midst of, at the intersection of faith and doubt. We want to believe, yet we're challenged by the circumstances of our lives. We want to believe that there's something bigger, and we want to hold on and have those experiences in life where we are just riveted on the edge of our seat because of uncertainty, yet... We're often glued and we're stuck where we're sitting because it just seems too big a price to pay. Well, for the past two weeks, uh, we've been going through the, the book of John. For the past three weeks, we have, but for the past two weeks, we've looked at two individuals. Michael, uh, two weeks ago, looked in John chapter 3 at a man's story who was, again, living right in the tension at the intersection of faith and doubt. His name was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a religious person who had all of the answers, and God made sense to him. He had formulated religion and God into a series of rules and structure, and he had God figured out. But there was something that drew him into the darkness one night to meet with Jesus, to talk to him about the things of eternity. And so Jesus, in in, in a sentence, flipped him upside down and said, if you want to be born again, if you want to experience this life eternal, you've got to be born again. And he was confused. How am I supposed to return into my mother's womb? It doesn't make sense. And Jesus said, no, you're missing the point. And then last week uh, in in John chapter 4, we looked at the Samaritan woman at the well, another woman who was riddled with insecurity and uncertainty, who had based her entire life around broken relationship, around broken relationship after broken relationship. And Jesus meets this unlikely individual and says, listen, I can see that your soul is thirsty. And the kind of water that I offer will quench your thirst for all eternity. But she was confused because she thought, well, how, how, how are you, what is this, some sort of supernatural big gulp that's going to quench my thirst for all of eternity? It doesn't even make sense. And he said, no, you're missing the point. And so here in John 5 today, we're going to look at another amazing individual whose story is our story. For those of us who are looking for answers, how do we live at the intersection of faith and doubt? How do we move beyond the doubts and live by faith? What does faithfulness look like? Is uncertainty even something that should be a part of the the Christian life? We're going to watch that story unfold and find some answers today in John chapter 5.
Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast, for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Well, what do we know about this story? What do we know about the pool of Bethesda? We know that tradition and superstition had taught for years, perhaps hundreds, maybe thousands of years, that if you were sick, if you could just get close enough to this pool, somehow when the spirits would stir, stir some believe today that maybe there was a, there's an underground spring that would just pop up. But when people would see the water stir, the first person in the water would find healing. And so hundreds every day, maybe even more, would surround this pool looking for hope, looking for healing, looking for some answers to life, looking for some security, looking for for an answer to the question about what am I supposed to do with the doubts? I want to have faith. I just want to be healed. And so Jesus meets this man who had been an invalid, who had been probably paralyzed for 38 years. For 38 years, perhaps, he had drawn close to this pool. It had become a part of his daily routine. He couldn't move himself there. He couldn't feed himself. He couldn't do anything. The only thing he could do was sit by this familiar pool day after day after day, hoping that somehow somebody would have the compassion to move him into this pool ahead of him. (laughs) But that would never happen. Because why else are they there? They are there for their own reasons. Why would somebody, when the spirits stirred, why would they put someone else in this pool? And so this man's fate was doomed. But nevertheless, every day, somehow, I don't, we don't know how he got there, we don't know how he showed up there, but he was there and he was sick and he was hoping and looking for some answers. Well, it goes on to say in verse six, uh, rather, yes, in verse six, When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Well, there's so much in this one little verse that we can't just blow past it. Even before we get to this defining question of do you want to get well? I think this one verse tells us so much about the character of God and who Jesus is. You know, there is a prevailing thought in theology that, that Jesus, or rather God, created this world. And then once science was set in motion, once biology and chemistry made sense, he left the, the world just to kind of fend for itself. Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? It feels like we're all alone. It feels like our prayers are bouncing off the ceilings of our bedrooms, our churches, our car roofs. Where are you, God? Are you here? And sometimes it's easy just to build a theology around what makes sense, around what we can see. I can't explain certain tragedies, certain circumstances that have happened in my life. And so it must mean that God just doesn't care. But we see a different story in this verse. And I don't know where you're living with this Jesus today, but watch how personally 
he turns towards this individual. It says that when he saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? So imagine this pool where hundreds of sick are lying. It's certainly not a place that the religious would want to hang out because of, of fear of, uh, of, uh, of getting sick themselves and of being defiled and so that they couldn't worship. And so the religious didn't hang around this particular place. How ironic that might, must be. Because it seems like that's the very place that, that, that the religious should have been, but they weren't. They wanted not to, nothing to do with it. And we don't know why Jesus picked or singled out this one individual. We just know that he did. But it says that he learned about him. And the scriptures aren't clear. Was that something that the Holy Spirit revealed to Jesus? Or if he asked around. But we know that he knew his story. And so if you came here this morning with a sense that God just created this world and left, or cares about the person to your right or to your left, but doesn't care or know about your story, you're wrong. Because he does. He cares intimately. He knows every fiber and fabric of your body. He knows, uh, he knows your credit card debt. He knows the conversation that happened on the, on the car ride on the way to church and the one that's going to ensue after this service. He knows what you're going to eat for lunch. He knows the prayers that you prayed last night for someone in your family who's hurting. He listens and he knows your story and he asks you questions. Do you want to get well? So he asks first this, this invalid, does he want to get well? In some ways, I mean, doesn't it seem like an odd question? He's an invalid. He is a paralytic. Of course he wants to get well. I mean, if we were reading the New International Sarcastic Translation, it might have a duh, you know, or something at the end of that. Of course but as Jesus so often does in the book of John, just in a calculated manner, lays each individual out. He sets him up because maybe the question about health wasn't really about health. It was about something deeper. Maybe it had something to do with that pool that he was laying next to. Maybe it had something to do with a comfort that he had grown accustomed to. As much as it didn't make any sense whatsoever, that pool had become a friend to him. So I wonder what questions Jesus is asking us today. Do we want to get well? Maybe he's asking you this question. Do you want to be in a loving relationship? Do you want to have depth and honesty and integrity and vulnerability and transparency in your relationships? Maybe you do, but maybe you also feel more comfortable lying next to a pool of broken patterns of the past. They don't make any sense, to, and everybody watching is saying, I see your pool, and I'm calling it out, but for you, it's comfort, and so you're holding on to it. Maybe it is that you want to get out of debt, and Jesus is asking, do you want to be out of debt? But it's a little bit easier to sit next to the pool of your ego and your bad decision-making, because what if somebody finds out Maybe you want to just simply move beyond the monotony because you are so bored with your life. And for some of you, even I think many Christians even come to this place and they phone in this, this transactional experience with God and they come week in and week out and life is just utterly boring. 
boring. It's nothing to write home about. And there's something within you that's saying, I've got to have something more. Certainly, I, I want to, even if it's just in the corners of your mind, I want to live out some of these stories that I hear about in Scripture. Could they possibly be real? Do they happen today? And you hear the stories in, in your A2 classes, in your small groups, and in your midweeks, and in, here on stage on Sunday morning of people who live those lives, and you want it, you want it, but yet there's a pool of comfort that is just lulling you to sleep. And so in the seventh inning, you just drift off, and you're missing the rest of one of the most amazing games to ever play out ever in the history of your life. Do you want to get well? I wonder what the pool of your choice today is. So in verse 7, John continues. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While, I, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes in ahead of me. If I were Jesus, like if I were the book of John, I probably would have inserted something of the, assort, the sort of uh, uh, the answer. It was a yes or no question. Uh, sir, I'm looking for a yes or no. Do you want to get well? I don't want an excuse of why you can't get into the pool. I didn't say anything about the pool. I just asked, do you want to get well? And I think today Jesus is saying to many of us, do you want to get well? And we've got a hundred excuses. Boy, I'm at the top of that list with my excuses of things that I can't get beyond because why I know it's going to cost me. I know it's going to hurt I know I'm going to feel it. I'm going to feel that pinch. And so do I really mean business? Sometimes, no. No, I don't want to get well. I mean, yes, as long as, it, as long as I could remain next to the pool that feels really comfortable to me, as long as I can do what's familiar and I don't have to change, sure, I'll get well. Can we do a little of both? And Jesus' response here is really amazing to me. And I think it tells us something about how he feels about our doubt. Because the, the invalid gives this excuse, and in verse 8 it says, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And in my Bible, there's an exclamation point after get up. It's like, Get up, you, it's an imperative. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And that tells me something about my doubts. It tells me something that even though this individual didn't respond, yes, I want to get well, and Lord, I repent from the, from the mistakes and, and sitting next to my pool, even though he didn't do that, Jesus still met him miraculously. And often that's the way Jesus meets us. In the midst of our doubt, things don't make sense. He's still going to be with us. He's going to respond to us. He's going to challenge us at the end. He's going to say, get up. It's up to you. But there's a place to go with this. And I'm going to walk with you in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your uncertainty, and bring you towards a life of faithfulness. And so he says, he gives us three imperatives as we, as we see here. And I'm going to share with you those in our time left here this morning in verse 8. Three imperatives on living at the intersection of faith and doubt, because that's where our lives are living. Kind of a Greek lesson this morning. 
He uses three words in verse 8. When he says get up, he says egere, which comes from the infinitive egero. You know how I remember egero is because my Greek professor put a picture on the screen, and if I had it, I'd put it up there, but it has a picture of Robin Hood, and he was holding up an arrow, and it had an egg on top of it, and, and it was I raise up, an egg arrow, and so egero means I raise up. There's your Greek lesson for the day. You'll never forget that one. Here's what Egere means when he says this. He says, get up, but it means this. It's an act of obedience. Paralyzed man, I know that you feel lost. I know that you've been here 38 years. I know your story better than anyone. He knows all of our stories better than anyone, yet he is challenging us just to be obedient first. Will you get up? Will you trust me? Will you live a life of not religion, but a life of faithfulness? And so he's saying this, trust me, trust in me more than you trust in your pool. Will you do that? Will you agere? In his book, No Faith, John Ortberg discusses his own struggles with faith and doubt. And in the end, he offers the challenge to embrace the uncertainty in your faith. He writes, many people, when they consider faith, think, I believe that God exists, or love is the greatest virtue. But at its core, faith is not simply the belief in a statement. It's trust. It puts trust in a person. Well, you trust me, Jesus is saying. I know it doesn't make sense. I know it's, it's worth falling asleep and you're tired, but trust me that there are four innings of the most amazing game of baseball right in front of you if you just stay awake. You've got to trust that something is going to happen. And so we agare. The second imperative is this. He says uh, to Aaron, which means to pick up. So get up, pick up. And, it, and to Aaron means this, to not forget. Don't forget. Don't forget what I did for you here in this place. It's a reminder. In the Old Testament, the word was an Ebenezer. It meant that God showed up. Something amazing happened. And your mat of what God just did, when, when I healed you, when I did something amazing for you, paralytic, this mat becomes your portable Ebenezer. Everywhere you go, it's a reminder to people of what I have done in your life. It's part of what God is trying to do in the midst of your uncertainty right now in your life is to say, where has he showed up? Are you just being faithful? Are you moving forward? Now tell people your story. Share with them the, the, the reality of your doubt, of the tension that you live between a faithfulness and, and uncertainty of faith and doubt. But about, allow this person, Jesus Christ, to be the anchor of your life and the anchor of your faith. You know who gets this concept really well? People who run foot races. I've run my share of races over the past several years. But yesterday I was in Wawa up at First Colonial Virginia Beach Boulevard getting uh, one of my favorite sandwiches, the Gobbler Sandwich on sale for $3.49. This service sponsored by Wawa. Uh, I was getting this wonderful, tasty sandwich, just kind of getting in the, in the Thanksgiving zone, and uh, I started to notice a bunch of interestingly dressed individuals walking in the door. And they had costumes on and, uh, you know, face paint and things of that sort, but they all had this orange ribbon with a medal 
around their chest in their numbers, and they looked like they had run from the ocean front, although the race had been done for probably an hour and a half. But they were, they were just so excited, and I, and I knew exactly what had happened. I'd run this, uh, this particular Halloween race, the Wicked 10K before, and, but I walked up to one lady. I knew she was so proud. Of, that's why she, you know, she wore her, her medal into Wawa. And I said, uh, hey, so what, so what happened today? Did you, uh, did you run a race? Yeah, I ran a race. It was a 10K race. 10K is 6.21371174 miles. Uh, nobody's really counting. But, uh, and I said, hey, that's a nice medal. And I kid you not, she said, I forgot I had it on. <laughs> I didn't tell her I was a pastor. And, uh, uh, but I thought, oh, really, you forgot? And everyone else in Wawa forgot they had their medal on, too. No, she was proud of that race. And it looked like she probably needed to train a little bit harder. Maybe, hopefully she walked. I don't know, just because uh, she, was, she was out of breath running into Wawa and uh, ordering a gobbler sandwich as well. Now, I didn't run the race, so who am I to talk? But I saw a bunch of people who were wearing their badges of honor around their neck. They wanted everyone to know what had just happened. And I wonder what that will look like for us as we say and celebrate what God has done for us in the past. You know who else gets this really well? Uh, Recovering alcoholics and drug addicts. People who are really actively working on their recovery. They get this sense of, hey, I know who I used to be and I want everyone to know what God has done and where he showed up in my life because apart from that, I would not be here right now. And every day they are having to wrestle with their own sobriety, their own addiction. And in the midst of their faithfulness and doubtfulness, they have to continue to walk. And so part of their healing, even part of our healing today, is to carry our mat, to pick it up to our own, to our own. You see, our mats serve as badges of faithfulness. That God showed up and they remind us of the sickness of our past and point toward the freedom of our future. And here's the final, the final command. So he says, get up, pick up, and walk, peripate, which simply means movement. And it's a challenge towards a ministry of, in life with others, a life of ministry with others. It means that there has to be movement. There has to be a decision. You can't stay stuck by this pool forever. God just showed up, and so what are you going to do, even in the midst of your uncertainty? And I think about this paralytic who's lying on the ground, and Jesus said, get up, take up your mat, and walk. Because how does this particular uh, passage end? It says, at once, in verse 9, at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. And so Jesus healed him. And he picked up his mat, but there was that moment of truth where he was healed. Jesus, he knew it. Maybe there was a feeling, a sensation throughout his body that he hadn't felt for 38 years. And there was that moment of truth where he had to lift his head and muscles had to follow. Oh, Lord, please let this be real. Please let this be real. And as he lifted up, he felt muscle grow. And what was once atrophied became strong, strong enough to not just walk, but to pick up his own mat and walk, but he couldn't stay there anymore. He had to go move. He had to go do something. And so that's part of this challenge. In the midst of our faithfulness, in the midst of things make not making sense, we have to be willing to move and to do and to be a part of the uncertain things that God has called us towards so that we will continue to grow in faithfulness. 
and go and tell people our story of where God showed up. That's all a part of our process. And that's where we live, at the intersection of faith and doubt. He says to walk. And really, as we're saying this, it means to recalibrate your soul movements in the direction of faithfulness, but not of certainty. Allow your soul to be drawn towards a person, not towards a sure thing, towards this person of Jesus Christ. Kind of as I was thinking about this, imagine if I had said to Perrin, when we were standing at the altar almost 15 years ago, you know, I am 95% certain that this marriage is going to work out. And uh, I'm pretty convinced that I want to marry you. I'm almost certain. I'm, <laughs> I mean, I'm like almost there. Now, of course, it's ridiculous. I never would have flown. And so when I said, with all that I am, with all that I have, I honor you, that was the real deal. That wasn't a story about certainty. That was a story about faithfulness. And so for the past almost 15 years, we have been walking in that faithfulness. When things at times, when, when illness came in, when, when confusion came in, when kids and more kids and more kids came into the picture and things seemed wobbly and entirely uncertain, it was faithfulness that bound and continues to bind our relationship together. John Ortberg says, what matters most then in those moments is not certainty but faithfulness. When certainty is not a possibility, faithfulness is still on the table. The book of James says it this way, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith without works is dead. It requires movement and movement and movement, even when things don't make sense. And so I want to leave you this morning with some questions at the intersection of faith and doubt. What pools have you been lying by waiting for something extraordinary to happen? What is your pool of choice? What question is Jesus asking you today, like the invalid, do you want to get well? But he's asking to you, do you want to blank? What is it? What question is he asking you? Finally, where does certainty need to give way to faithfulness in your life? You're looking for a sure thing, but Jesus is saying, just be faithful because I will be faithful to you. Even in the midst of your doubt, when things don't make sense, I'm gonna continue to show up because I love you. Well, I had my own faith and doubt experience this past weekend. Um, had kind of a, a unique opportunity to travel to Nicaragua this past weekend with some friends, uh, kind of a vision-building team and uh, trip, and wasn't really sure what to expect. In fact, the Thursday that morning that we left, I told Perrin that morning that I'm already homesick. I just, I have no idea why I'm going, but I want to be there with this team. I love this team. I want to be there but I've been to Nicaragua dozens of times, and while it had been a long time since I'd been there, I just felt like, I, what am I doing? And if I'm absolutely honest in front of all of you today, I think that some of that uncertainty came to the fact that, that, that in the back of my mind, sometimes I wonder, all of this effort, all of this energy, all of the resources we put into orphan care in third world countries and Nicaragua and specific orphanages that many of you have been to, sometimes I wonder, are we, 
Are we really making a difference? I mean, I see some of these same kids, and there, there, there are hundreds of thousands of orphaned children still in Nicaragua, and here we are caring for, you know, just a fraction of this. Are we really making a difference? Well, I got to meet a, a certain pastor down there who was, his name was Pastor Romero, and had a chance to talk with him through a translator. His English was very limited, and my Spanish was even more limited. So beyond the olas and the hellos, we were stuck. But I talked to him about his story, and one of the things that amazed me, that really challenged me in the midst of my faith and doubt intersection in Nicaragua, was when he started talking about a little boy named Moises. He talked about something that was, that was happening in Nicaragua that, that just absolutely was inspiring him, that was igniting his soul. He gave several markers in this conversation for orphan care for the things that he was hoping to see. He talked about our goal is to raise dietary care. It was to, to care spiritually for, for these kids. It was to provide safety. And it was also to challenge them educationally, to grow them in English. But, but what really seemed to inspire him was when he talked about self esteem. Now, I've been to Nicaragua dozens of times, and I've never really heard anyone passionately talk about wanting to raise the level of self-esteem of an orphan. But think about it. What hangs in the balance of a future of an individual if they get that they can really accomplish something bigger than themselves? So self-esteem is one of the most important things that we can do when it comes to orphan care. And all of the, the factors that I mentioned before lean into it. But he said this, he said, so many of the orphans that come to this orphanage, whether, by, uh, whether they have lost their parents or whether they, their parents couldn't afford them, come here without an identity. Literally. They have no birth certificate. And so they are, they, the pastor described him, that they are like a vapor, that they don't exist. And so he began to describe a story of what he is now doing with, with several partners, and many of you here in this church are a part of this, as we are beginning to buy back the identity of orphans, giving them self-esteem. And he said to Moises, what has to happen in order to get a birth certificate is that you have to go and trace the lineage of this individual, and sometimes you can't find the parents. And so you have to go back to the community of, of origin where they were born and say, do you remember this child? He was probably only two years old when he left this orphanage. Do you remember? And he described the chase and the pursuit of trying to track down Moises' story. And finally, in this village, he found somebody that remembered him. And that began a process of connecting the dots and connecting the dots. And then after investing the resources and time and energy, they were able to get this little boy's birth certificate. And Romero described the moment where he was able to hand this identity back to this child who was a vapor who didn't exist in this world. That Moises' eyes lit up and he carried this badge of honor around to all of the other kids saying, I exist. I am real. I'm not a vapor. I have a life and there is hope for me. I exist. And because of that birth certificate, he can get a real job. He doesn't have to work on the streets. He can get a college education. It starts with this existence. He exists. And in a moment, as I was sitting in the plane reflecting on the way home, God, where were you on this trip? Where did you show up? And there were so many ways, but this was the one. He said, this is your faith and doubt moment. I'm showing up in a big way. I'm just asking you to show up and get on a plane and go. And look what happened. 
You don't have to get on a plane to go to Nicaragua for God to show up. But he asks you to get up in the midst of your doubt, to pick up your mat, the things that don't make sense, use them as a badge of honor, and walk and move in a life in ministry serving those around you. You do that, and somehow in some strange way, just like it did for the paralytic, just like it did for the Samaritan, just like it did for Nicodemus, life is going to start to make sense. Don't fall asleep, folks. There is an amazing rest of this game left to play. Seize it, take it, and do something amazing with it, even at the intersection of faith and doubt. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, there are so many things in this world that just don't make sense. why our family members get sick, why, uh, why we lose jobs, why the economy surges and falls, why are there hundreds of thousands of orphaned children in just one small country in Central America? Go, Lord, we could go on and on about circumstance after circumstance, but you're not asking us about the circumstance. You're asking us, do we want to get well? Do we want things to be different? And so I pray this morning that you would challenge each of us beyond what's comfortable to lean into not a religion but into a person who is always faithful even when things don't make sense. God, meet us in the midst of our stories today in Jesus' name. Amen.